Welcome to another episode of The Science of Therapy. I'm Amelia. And I'm Maddie, and we're both clinical researchers at Macquarie Uni. We spoke to another clinical researcher today. His sure did. Dr. Zach Seidler. He's a postdoctoral research fellow over at the University of Melbourne and Origin, and he's involved with Movember as well, and is making many, many waves when it comes to men's mental health, help-seeking, suicide prevention, and everything in between. There were a lot of interesting takeaways from this episode in terms of how, as a clinician, we might be approaching our practice differently when it comes to men as well. So Zach spoke about how depression and other uh, mental health difficulties can actually present differently in men, and we might be looking for different symptoms than we would expect. Zach also spoke about masculinity and how that might play a role in someone's presentation to treatment, someone's engagement with a therapist, and importantly, how to use that knowledge to engage men better and to get better treatment outcomes. And Zach also spoke about how there's a role for therapists to recognize their own perceptions of masculinity and how that might be impacting the way that they work with men as well. It's a very thought-provoking episode with a lot of practical takeaways and a lot of things that you can just sit with and think about in terms of your practice and your client base. So we hope you find it as interesting as we did. And without further ado, here it is. Welcome to the podcast, Zach. Thanks for having me, guys. Long-time listener, first-time guest. Oh, God. <laughs> Thank you. Zach's passion, I guess, in research is to really figure out why men drop out of treatment, how men access treatment, and how we can develop treatment that is going to be effective in men as well. So the common word there was men. So I guess why men? Why are we starting with that when we know that it presents across all people? I think it's a really complex debate, and it's something that's often led to uh, some heated moments with mm. myself in both everyday life and at conferences. And that's because of the dichotomy, I think, between uh, men and women, the fact that it's it's seen as this, this binary, which we know it's not, um, and therefore one group gets pitted against the other, yeah. which I think is mm. really problematic. I am not by any means suggesting uh, that we should not pay attention to women or women's mental health. Um, if anything, the fact that I focus on men's mental health is directly related to the fact that I would like to improve women and children and communities' well-being mm. um, because of the fact that men suffer and they often suffer in silence. Uh, and the, the, the large amount of the emotional toll uh, is placed on, on women and children as a result. So from a political standpoint, you can have that. But uh, <laughs> more broadly, the reason that I focus on men is because no one does uh, mm. when it comes to mental health, and that's because of men's own deception um, of the system. So I, I like to think of, uh, and I'm not sure if this is necessarily the case, but I think of Freud and Jung back in the day um, as being the great deceivers. They just decided that they're going to create this, this model of, of psychotherapy uh, that is going to focus on women and on hysteria and mm. on all of the things that are problematic in the other sex uh, to avoid their own crap, really, <laughs> I think, in many ways. Because we all know that they were struggling. You can see all the movies that are coming out now um, with Freud's addictions, left, right, and center, and, and you know his relationship with his kids and his wife. Um, he also had trauma, all of that stuff. And there seemed to be uh, this belief that men didn't need to be a part of this system, mm. that they were immune to it, that they should just go to work, that they should you know, continue on, they go to war, whatever it may be. 
And as a result, we've ended up with a, a clinical model that doesn't understand or respond to men's needs in any way because those you know, 50, 60, 70 years uh, were purposefully avoidant of men and mm -hmm. men were not uh, the target audience of psychotherapy. And so what happened over time is that uh, coaching psychology came about and men go, oh, yeah, I can get around that. That sounds good. <laughs> and, and so they, they start to look at performance coaching, sports psychology, all of that starts to arrive and that becomes male-friendly apparently. And uh, in the meantime, the suicide rate continues to rise and people continue to go, what is happening here? And surprisingly, until about the you know 80s or 90s, no one really delved into uh, what are men's emotional states? What are they struggling with and why? And uh, that's kind of where I step in to go, uh, there's something problematic within society uh, that, is, that is teaching men a very rigid way of being, and we are all complicit in it, uh, whether we are community members or psychologists. Uh, we are perpetuating the problem if we are not reflecting on it, if we're not attending to it. And so uh, the aim of my career so far has really been to focus on let's upskill, let's focus on what this stuff is, let's not pretend that we know it all uh, because, you know, gender is general knowledge. Mm. You know, I, I have it and therefore I know it. It's just not the case in any other area, but gender for some reason is just something that everyone thinks that they're a master of. Mm. And... Uh, being the only straight white male in my um in my gender studies major at Sydney University, I, it became very clear that men are not reckoning with their own gender mm. at all. Um, feminism led to this huge pursuit of understanding because women, you know, were not empowered to you know take control of their lives, and so they go, "What's going on here?" I hope uh, that men are now coming to terms with the fact that their outcomes in life, with life expectancy, with suicide rates. Uh, are not where they should be. And so hopefully we start to go, what is actually happening? And the current cultural moment, you know, with uh, violence and sexual abuse and consent is forcing people to consider it. Mm. There is so much to unpack in yeah. that. I don't know where to start. What surprised me, so it is, it's interesting that perhaps contrary to most other aspects of research in uh, physical and mental health, women are perhaps overrepresented. Is your sense in particularly models of psychotherapy one opinion or belief that's widely held that I'm open to have some contrary evidence to is that the rates of anxiety and mood problems in women far exceed those in men. Mm. Do you believe that is also the case? Is there evidence to suggest that we're actually measuring these things incorrectly in men? Or are we underestimating these things? I love that feeling when a question is asked that feels planted, but it's not. And I'm like, here we go. Here's all, here's all the answers. <laughs> but I, I just like... This is, yeah. <laughs> given you exactly what you want. You're welcome. This is, you've just played into my arm. <laughs> That's my what I want to say, played into your hands. This is, this is the, the great conundrum that uh, my team and I face. And I'm very lucky that I've got international collaborators who've been, who've been dealing with this question for quite a while. The gender paradox, which is what we call it in in suicide rates is that women attempt suicide much more regularly, five to six times more regularly mm. than men do, but men die by suicide three to four times uh, more often. So what people often uh, suggest is, you know, we look at the prevalence rates of depression and we say, oh, men are just not suffering with this stuff as often. 
the same for anxiety. I have a PhD student who's looking into anxiety at the moment because I've done a lot of work in depression, and it's astounding that nobody has looked into anxiety. But mm. what we know, uh, and you know, the evidence for this is growing, uh, and it requires much more rigorous research. I'm not going to suggest otherwise. But um, the idea that there is a male phenotype of depression, uh, which manifests very differently to the DSM criteria. Uh, in that it is largely an externalizing symptomatology focused on irritability, anger, you know, aggression, violence, drug taking and, and drinking is pretty well understood now as being something that a subset of men experience. So there is obviously still the vast majority of men are going to still fit within the, you know, DSM criteria. Mm-hmm. There is a certain percentage of men who have these other symptoms who just slip through the cracks. Okay. And, and it's not considered depression or anxiety. It's not considered uh, to be anything you know, clinically relevant. In fact, it's often that they're segued and, and moved into anger management courses. Yeah. Uh, they are you know, often told that it's just men behaving badly and they need to get their shit together. And what happens, in fact, is that those factors – impulsivity and risk-taking which really come into play are the direct risk factors for suicidality mm. and they go missed uh, and we end up with guys who show up to the gp the gp doesn't see this as something worthy of intervention necessarily and um they, they're gone yeah. to, the, to the system which is really problematic much harder to see the pain behind those kinds of behaviors than uh, more of an internalizing phenotype Exactly. Mm. And I think that that requires society's shift of sorts. And we speak about the models of psychotherapy, you know, being feminized in the grand scheme of things. I don't think that that's necessarily an issue. It's just the fact that there has to be diversity and difference in the way we go about it. And I know yeah. both of you are behaviorists in the grand scheme of things. And that type you of You are approach, a listener. <laughs> I'm also a massive nerd, which helps. But, but there is, there's a lot to be said for you know, behavioral approach is being really, really useful for men because it's it's practical, it's it's action oriented. Mm. Action empathy, for mm. instance, is something that men really love, which is like be empathetic and tell me how I can move forward here rather than, oh, give me a shoulder to cry on. That doesn't necessarily work for many, many men. So when it comes to the DSM criteria, the thing that I really want to point out to your listeners is that um depression in children incorporates irritability and outbursts of anger. But when considering depression in adults, the DSM-5 inexplicably just drops those. Yeah. And they are so commonly seen in clinical practice. And, you know, in my own work moving around and talking to clinicians, no one has any idea how to respond to these things. But in the child, suddenly it's something that can be understood because they don't have emotion regulation skills. We know that men actually suffer from poor emotion regulation as well. So... We need to expand this whole system, I think. Mm. So it sounds like there's kind of a missing diagnosis or a missing phenotype that could exist in a diagnostic manual or something that might capture those people that go on to suicide but aren't captured early on. In terms of prevention or early identification or treatment, we need to acknowledge that there is a different phenotype that's more likely to present in men and more likely to result in suicide. Is that right? Exactly. Even putting aside the suicide question, you know, I naturally gravitate towards that because of the statistics mm. and because it draws people's attention. This is very sad within the, the research world. The crisis seems it's to get true. money and seems to yeah. get attention. 
So that aside, I didn't. I decided my PhD wasn't focused on suicide prevention, but now I am hol- holistically drawn into that field. Okay. I think that this type of phenotype, this type of externalizing expression of distress, can be linked across all types of psychiatric issues, mm. and it's kind of a, this transdiagnostic approach, which is being really rolled out across the board now. But we need to start asking. And I think that that's something that hasn't happened for a very long time. Qualitative research in in men is now booming, but we've got five years behind us compared to you know the fact that this, these types of questions have happened for a very long time yeah. um, because women have been presenting. They are they are there. They're in clinical trials. They're also willing to uh, very much take part in interviews and, and talk about their experiences because stigma wasn't an issue necessarily as as prevalently as it is for men. for men. So we've spoken about how perhaps when we start to broaden our minds to the indicators of distress in a variety of psychopathologies in men, we might start to see a shift in the prevalence disparities between men and women. Um, so we're kind of righting the wrongs of that historical trend. I'm also interested to know you mentioned that our model of care has been similarly overrepresented in terms of women what how does that not fit for men what's wrong with our psychotherapeutic approaches that mean that we aren't able to perhaps engage men in treatment or keep them in treatment so i think something that's really important is that and i want to stress this to all of the female listeners who i'm sure are the majority here given mm-hmm. the fact that the majority of our profession is uh, is female that's an is interesting that, conversation uh, in itself isn't it yeah. <laughs> it is so it's we've got what it's 78 percent of the australian workforce is mm. female mm. and that has something to, to say about why men aren't choosing this profession mm. uh, why men aren't lasting uh, throughout yeah. the, the the number of years uh what what's being sold to them that that whole idea is, is problematic in and of itself but i think uh there is when it comes to the idea of what psychotherapy is offering men, the the typical model requires emotional communication. Mm-hmm. It requires vulnerability. It requires insight and self-reflection. And these are things that are not socialized uh, for men. They are not central tenets of masculinity. They are, if anything, in direct contradiction to traditional masculine norms, which are instead stoicism, independence, self-reliance. Everything that psychotherapy is not is what being a traditional man is. And so we end up with this disconnect in many ways where men come in and they have to leave their masculinity at the door. Uh, And what I try to suggest when I'm trying to engage with men who present in that way, whether they be young guys, footy players, farmers, you know, CEOs, it doesn't matter. Uh, we all have our own different masculinities that, that come and present in totally different ways depending on the moment. I try to involve and leverage that to my own advantage in treatment. And it's really important that we try to understand what are the strengths here that men have, you know? The fact that they're really goal-oriented is something that we love in psychotherapy. So why do we have to uh, wait for session three or four to really delve into the practical when in fact they come in session one they have a situational stressor which is you know unemployment or financial distress or something that is really getting to them they don't want to go into 
necessarily, you know, the deep, dark secrets of, of what's happening emotionally for them. Why, why do we have to fit them into that box? The pacing of therapy, um, which is something that not many people speak about. We have a very clear model that session one and two are going to be an assessment and, and, and it just doesn't necessarily work. My session one for many people, I don't do a history. I just go, what do you, what do you need? Mm. And they leave session one being like, oh, okay, I, I can buy into this. Trust is the most important thing for many of these guys because they are putting their masculinity on the line in many instances. And so to show them that you are willing to meet them halfway and then, you know, this is what happens. I, I go through four, five, six sessions with a client uh, where we will just talk about their interests, for instance. We'll talk about what we need to do in the everyday to try to make things a little easier. And then come session six, they'll tell me, tell me about a traumatic event that happened. Mm. They will get this buy-in over time and then they will release the information uh, when they feel that, that you are worthy of it in many ways. And it just shows that we don't need to force. We don't need to force crying. We don't need to force mm-hmm. emotional communication. Let them do what they do best. It's a funny, that really resonated with me. It's funny, I think as psychologists, we forget how difficult those conversations are about deeply emotional, historical things especially. And we do expect people to tell us their entire life story in the first session. And we're so used to it because when we sit in sessions with people, we hear those things and we are not not necessarily desensitized to it, but we expect that level of emotional forthcomingness, if forthcomingness is a word. Um but of course we can't expect people to to give us everything on a platter in session one. And of course we should focus on engagement and goal-directed therapy until somebody feels ready to. That's um, It's obvious, but I think it's easy to forget. Something that we say at Movember a lot is meet men where they're at, which is firstly the fact that we go in with interventions to sporting clubs and to schools and, and all of that, which is a physical meeting them where they're at. But it's also understanding... What are you good at? What do you like? What do you want to know? Mm. And rather than uh, trying to, as I said, uh, lead them into our room with our goals and our ideas of what is successful. And what's your mother like? Exactly. <laughs> and it is, it is a nightmare for them. And they have, and this is, this is my main concern, is that men have a pretty poor mental health literacy in the grand scheme of things, which I like to think that we're shifting, but, but women talk about this stuff in social circles. Men yeah. don't. And hopefully that will shift. But as a result, the vast majority of men come in to my therapy room and they say, where is the couch? Where are the degrees on the wall? Where's this? Where's that? They, they've seen it, you know, in a Woody Allen film, and that's how it's going to be because they haven't had any corrective evidence. And so we need to, as a profession, really suggest and open up the idea of what therapy can look like. I do walking therapy. I do running therapy. I've done equine therapy. There's adventure therapy left, right, and center for, for men across the states is a huge idea, especially within the veteran um, space. And mm-hmm. so I think that we need to broaden out uh, what it needs to look like. For instance, my, my most important idea is that eye-to-eye contact oh, gosh, is, no. is considered, uh, you know, the most important way to connect with somebody when in fact I look at the wall for the vast majority of my session with young men because they cannot hold it they do not want to hold it and they are much more likely to offer you know it's just like the idea that when you've got a a mum in her car she's looking in the rear window yeah 
to try and get the information out of, out of her son. I, I'll throw a ball, we'll just do anything with our hands or something different to just break that tension, which is not comfortable or usual for them. It's not how they relate. And so we don't need to force them into that. Another thing we forget, like we're told, as you said, Zach, we're told, parents are often told to, if they want to ask their teenager questions about how they're going and what's happening in their lives, talk to them in the car where there's no eye contact, it's less pressured and it kind of didn't translate across to adulthood. And one of the things I think that's sticking out to me is that as a clinician, I haven't been taught all of these things that therapy might be different for men. You know, you might not want to hold eye contact or you might want to meet them where they're at. And I think a lot of the points you've kind of mentioned, they are also maybe easier if you're a male therapist and you kind of know what masculinity looks like and you're able to meet someone halfway. And I'm just wondering whether you find that men are more likely to engage with male therapists or if there are training programs available for female or non-binary therapists that can help us see what they need for sure here's something i prepared earlier so yeah. the idea the idea firstly uh i'm talking in broad generalizations yeah so let's just yeah. be clear on that that there are plenty i've seen plenty of clients typically in their 40s or 50s uh who have come to terms with you know their own issues who've come to terms with with where they stand on certain things they've got kids now blah 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 and so they've gotten to the point where you can have what is considered a very traditional psychotherapeutic exchange in saying that as i said there is there is that diversity where you're going to get some clients i had a client yesterday who just spun around in the chair the whole session and and said nothing um and i need to be okay and and sit with that i don't think uh that this is necessarily uh because i'm a man that I can, you know, understand these things. And, and we just actually ran some research with 2,000 Australian guys who had sought help. Um, and we asked them what their preference was. And 61% have no preference. So that's that's pretty common, but it's never been looked at specifically in a male sample. So 61% no preference. 21% had a preference for a female counsellor and 19% for a male. Mm -hmm. And the reasons for that are pretty interesting, um, which are really just around the 19% who wanted a man said they wanted someone who would understand their experience. And the 21% who wanted a woman wanted someone who could empathize with them and who they could actually be open and honest with. Because men are often uh, much more open with the women in their lives and they understand that emotional communication with women. Uh, it's not socialized in a male to male context. Interesting. But that aside, the evidence shows that a good therapist is a good therapist, and we, we know that. What's important is that uh, we are there and we are willing to adapt to the man in front of us. And uh, I don't think that that happens as often as we might think it happens. Uh, we might feel like we're, we're adapting, but if you actually went into supervision and described what you did in that session, you probably did something pretty similar to what you did with the client previously. Yeah, exactly. I, I try to take a really unstructured approach where I'm going to fully follow his lead in many instances. I think that it's important that we understand that regardless of our own gender, and I think men overestimate uh, their abilities to go, I know masculinity. Mm. I live it every day, therefore I know it. And we know that. We've, we've just run some research with male clinicians, 
and they they talk about their understanding of masculinity and gender as if it's it's so strong and that they're so aware of all of this stuff but they've also done very limited training in this space and if anything they're probably blinded by their own experience in ways that women are not because we have a subjective frame and and women have a, a more objectivity when it comes to some of this stuff in that they they view men from a distance uh, whereas I have my own ideas about how this should be and therefore you should conform to my idea of masculinity. So there are strengths and weaknesses to both genders, you know, interacting with men. And I think that what it comes down to is that we need to do the work. Yeah. We need to understand where does this come from? What is our own gender? How does it interact with our male clients? For instance, I've worked and, and trained lots of therapists who have had their own domestic violence experiences. and so. They tell me that they are fundamentally afraid of many men who fit within a certain age and ethnic demographic, for instance. Mm. And they continue to see those men, but they've never said that out loud. And I go, well, you wonder what's happening in the room. What do you think he's picking up on here? You know, there are so many men who see a therapist who respond in these surveys that, that I undertake and they say, uh, you know, they felt cold and they felt uh, like they weren't being actually listened to and they were being told what was wrong with them rather than, you know, being allowed to take the time and use the language that makes sense to them to express what's happening. And that's something that's really essential is this idea around what we call male normative alexithymia, which is mm -hmm. the idea that men uh, cannot or will not express what's going on for them is something that, that has been existent within the literature for quite a while. Um, and it, it's kind of uh, filtered down into the, collective consciousness which is like men don't talk men don't know how to talk uh and while we'd like to expand men's emotional abilities where are we expanding them to do we need to expand them into our realm or do we need to get them to be able to express something meaningful to them that we can adapt and understand it sounds like there are some societal level issues when it comes to the recognition of mental distress or I mean a whole variety of things in men and then that's filtering down and where obviously as therapists impacted by our social norms and and what is normal to us and so it's not only impacting the frequency or the likelihood of someone presenting to you in therapy it's also impacting your relationship within the therapy room and how you're going to respond to someone when they come and meet you and so it's not necessarily that you know uh psychopathology in men is some scary or unknown or mysterious thing it's like we just have to meet them where they're at like a like a human rather than expecting them to fit into our understanding of what it looks like or expecting them to fit within a stereotype that we live our lives by in many instances and this is the issue there's so many instances where you go and you'll catch yourself i'm sure hopefully oh yeah whether it be conversation or therapy now where you'll go there'll be a moment in your head where you go that's what men do well, that's how men are. Mm. And and even if you're not saying it out loud, there'll just be a, a nod. There'll just be something which we don't necessarily challenge. And what that does is it means that the guy comes in with a spectrum of masculinities that he's willing to put on display. Mm. And every time we do something like that, we narrow their ability to express something to the point where they're just going to perpetuate the stereotype for us because that's all we've given them room to move with. And so you asked previously about where... Uh, women and, and non-binary clinicians can go to learn about this stuff. I did a um, 
a curricular review of all you know mental health curricula, medical curricula, and nobody is talking about gender across Australia. Full stop. It's just not something that's discussed. And of course, curricula are overflowing, and there's there's too much to be taught. But this seems something, especially when you look at these huge disparities, uh, that is very clear and plainly an issue, I would say. And so I've actually gone and, and created training that we're now testing through an RCT, which is called Men in Mind, and it's it's funded by Movember. And it's really focused on giving the, the foundational knowledge of what is masculinity, how does it interact with your mental health, and then what is the clinician's own gender, and how can that have an intersectional crossover with the man's feelings about his masculinity? What impact is that going to have on clinical outcomes and specifically what is it going to do for engagement because we know that if a man or a woman is engaged in therapy they're going to do equally well and that's something that's really important men don't do badly in therapy it's the fact that they are much more likely to leave early because they have a bad time and and my research shows that if you come in for one session and you're a young guy and you are not satisfied the chances that you ever discuss your distress with a GP, a family member, or a clinician ever again, a halved. How it's, important is that first session? It's so, so important. And that's why don't just do your blanket assessment. Get to know him. Just talk to him like a human being. It's interesting. And to pick up something that you said before, it sounds like an important target or an important consideration in that early engagement phase is to leverage the masculinities that they come in with. And it also sounds like that's often a core reason that they seek help in the first place when perhaps their ability to be self-sufficient or provide others is compromised. I wonder, so it's about kind of buying into maybe even unhelpful beliefs about supporting others to get them engaged in therapy and then challenging them later? Because do we run the risk of inadvertently reinforcing them by relying on them to engage? Exactly. That's such a good question. So something that I often say when people go, how am I supposed to engage young guys in discussions about consent or domestic violence or or suicide? They often go, uh, they're not going to listen to a a speech. It's just not going to happen. They're not going to be told what is wrong and what they're doing incorrectly. So I have to kind of suspend my political correctness sometimes just to get buy-in because I know, for instance, this client who just spun around the whole of yesterday's session, I believe, hopefully, that at some point in the next three, four, five weeks, I'm going to get to the point where he knows that I'm sticking around, Mm. where he knows that I can just chat shit about TV and about music with him to the point where at some point in the near future, he's going to, you know, let something out something that has been bothering him because there's no doubt he's got all of these behavioral issues that are going on. There's something underlying them. And so that's where the pacing comes in, which is that you're not complicit in reinforcing things if you don't address them immediately. And we like to do that where we see, oh, there's an issue. He's not talking to his friends about what's going on. He needs to do that. Here's a behavioral experiment. Mm -hmm. You need to go and discuss this immediately. When in fact that should happen, but should happen a bit later when there is that buy-in. And so Suggesting that clinical outcomes should come before engagement when it comes to to working with men is just not the case. Mm. Clinical outcomes will come. They might come a bit later, but they come so quickly when they start. So, you know, it might be session, as I said, session five, six, seven, 
but the progress that I make when that happens is is huge because they're ready and they'll just give it to you, you know, in in its entirety. Mm. We know that the therapeutic relationship and alliance with your clients is so important in predicting treatment outcomes. From what you're saying, I'm wondering whether it's even more important in this population where if you don't have it, not only are they going to drop out, but they're not going to get better if they don't like you, which I find fascinating because we know it's so important and we know that therapists' own reflection on their practice is also a big determinant of that relationship and how it's going. So it sounds like almost the perfect setting for people to be being trained up to increase people's engagement in therapy when they do identify as male. Hmm. You've got a framework whereby a woman comes into treatment and she understands the code of conduct, you know, when it comes to therapy because she's done it at brunch on the weekend potentially. (laughs) Men are sitting at the pub shoulder to shoulder, you know, watching the footy, talking about their lives, but in a very roundabout way very often. And we need to find a way to bottle that and allow that in in therapy. Mm. When I was reflecting and hearing you answer that question around masculinity and, and how much we buy into those norms, it actually reflects a broader issue we see in psychotherapy where there is goal misalignment. For example, you have somebody who comes in with an eating disorder and they their primary intention is to remain thin, for example, and you know that that's perpetuating their issues around what thinness and an ideal shape means to them. But there is an importance of, of initial engagement and establishing a relationship before you challenge that. Otherwise, you do lose them. Exactly. And cognitive distortions are happening left, right and centre for men. There's no doubt about it. Eating disorders in men are massively underdiagnosed mm. as well. We can go across every possible diagnosis and we're going to see issues because men don't present, therefore they don't get diagnosed, therefore they don't count in the numbers. Also, you give them a measure like you know, the BDI, and they look at it and they go, what are you talking about? Mm. And they say, this this isn't me. No, I'm not feeling any of these things. When in fact, if we give them something like Simon Rice's, who's my, who's my supervisor's male depression risk scale, which includes anger, irritability, substance misuse, you suddenly start to see scores going through the roof and mm. you put that next to a PHQ-9 and you go, wait a second, they get zero on every item on the PHQ-9. How is that possible? Mm. Because we weren't asking them what's going on for them and their distress looks different. But something that's that's really important is the idea that we don't need to talk about masculinity in the room. We need it to be a subtext. You don't want to be like, that's because of your masculinity. That's because you're a man. <laughs> no. no you, ask, you ask a guy, we asked 2,000 men, what does your masculinity mean to you? And we had over 30% of them say, my penis. Okay. That's it. That's okay? it. So, the, so that's it. That's all it is. And they, they just see it as a biological thing. And this is, to, you know, there's the answer around how much reckoning they've done with their own gender. But also there is you know, something to be said for if we probe and we say, oh, no, it's because of your masculinity, they go, no, it's not. Don't tell me that. So instead, we need to have that running dialogue in our head where we go, how can we come at this from from an angle without necessarily, you know, mentioning the war? Yeah, you don't want to hit it with a hammer. Gently tap away at it from the sides. With a chisel. Yeah. So we should probably move on to the three questions we like to ask everybody at the end of our discussions. What do you think is the biggest misconception held by clinicians around your area of expertise? I think there's two parts to it. 
which is the idea that men don't or won't seek help is an issue. And I think that more and more, hopefully, clinicians are seeing men lining up outside their door asking for help, but that when they come in, that they don't want to or know how to talk or emote. And I think, as I've said, there's a really important lesson there, which is that we need to understand how they want to talk about this stuff and we need to adapt accordingly. You don't go to a physio and the physio says, oh, I can't deal with that knee. That's just not a knee that I've seen before and I just, I don't know where to begin. So you should just go and see someone else. No, we, we try to go, talk to me about what's going on for your knee. Where's the pain? When's it happening? You, you need to try to, as we said, meet men where they're at and break down that idea that firstly, he doesn't want to be there. We don't want to start necessarily with that. Rather, just trying to create a space that is useful to him, you know, that, that tries to tick his boxes by finding out what those boxes are. Mm. And uh, something that's really important that I, I want to make sure that I share, when it comes to the, the idea that men don't seek help, we actually know that 60% of men who suicide have actually sought help in the months prior. So that idea that they are just slipping through the cracks, that they are, it's happening out of the blue, is actually not the case. Mm. There is something to be said for that connection, that initial interaction that takes place and that often fails. And, you know, I, that keeps me up at night. That is something that needs to shift and we need to find a way to make sure that when they come in the door, because it's cost so much health promotion money, it's cost so much emotional tax on their family that we do our best to make sure that we offer them something that they want and that they need. Mm. It's something that I think also cuts across. It's a skill that clinicians probably already have or that they have been trying to develop but are perhaps not using kind of to the best of their capacity maybe, like acknowledging that you might have to tailor the way that you interact with someone because of the gender with which they identify Mm. rather than just, okay, this person has anxiety, this is how I typically assess for anxiety, wham, bam, we're done, moving on. And if you go through that standard procedure, you're not going to meet the person where they're at. Mm, And it's acknowledging that you need to be there as a human, not just a machine that's asking questions. There is huge evidence in the cultural competency world. Mm. I see gender as one of the multicultural competencies that we need to be understanding and paying attention to. It's very similar to working with you know, certain ethnic groups, you know, there are so many differences between the genders and between and within men that we are not attending to. There, We we call it the uh, gender differences cul-de-sac. When we try to share these differences between men and women, it is just a dead end. Just stop. I'm so over it. It's like men are different from what we know. What that means is that we lose all of the diversity within men because everyone's trying to compare these two very clearly different groups when instead we should be looking at the difference between younger and older men between you know indian and and australian men and all of these different groups that are very clearly experiencing things in very specific ways Mm. so that leads perfectly into our next question which is what would you like to see clinicians change or what do you think clinicians can really take away from this to improve their practice, particularly around engagement and retention of men in practice? I think we need to reflect on our own gender. 
We need to understand where it comes from, who taught it to us, how it might interact in our practice. Bring that to supervision. Bring it to self-reflection. Have a discussion with your partner. Have a discussion with your friends about where where you learnt certain things and why you decided to drop some norms, for instance. You know, there are certain ideas around masculinity which at some point in time I just dropped. I was like, no, nope, I'm not buying these anymore. But I don't think I did it consciously. And so therefore, when I witness it in others, I can't actually start to go, oh, this is the process by which you can move past this. And the social pressures that exist throughout the teenage years, for instance, we just move so quickly through that period without trying to see where is it that this stuff is coming from? Why am I adapting in this way over time? What are my interactions with men versus with women? Which men trigger me? I think that that's something that is really, really important. I get triggered by narcissistic men. It does my head in. I find it really, really difficult. uh, I find dependence difficult. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, which is worthy of a lot of self-reflection, I think. Mine's aggression. Yeah. Yeah. So the the typical, having looked at, you know, quite a few clinicians' experiences now, aggression and anger is something that female clinicians especially just have not reckoned with, haven't practiced, haven't understood, because it's not something that's, you know, in their everyday world. Whereas, you know, for me, if I sit across, I've had clients pull knives in sessions, and and I've thought about the fact that I worked with, you know, a very uh, small, meek uh, female clinician who... Like, how is she going to respond to a guy who's a, a meth addict who pulls a, a knife in session? That is a very comfortable space for me, strangely. Whereas, uh, you know, that type of a man, for instance, who's really shy, I find really difficult as well to, to try to interact with. And I've, I've considered my own, uh, you know, gender and how that might interact here because I'm extremely competitive, for instance. And so when I get caught up with narcissistic clients, I just end up in this competitive banter where we're trying yeah. to one-up each other. And that's just the way that, you know, I've potentially been brought up having two older brothers. And so I've thought a lot about where this comes from and why, and I catch myself in session. And that's really what we try to do across the board, but maybe this is just something that we should add. And it becomes a nightmare for me as a researcher, because as you said, we're just doing very nuanced 5% additions to things that we already know and Mm. so i want to put you know that i'm not i'm not teaching clinicians to suck eggs they know what's what here but it's just a matter of attending to it and amplifying these skills that already exist it's definitely more about the process of therapy rather than the content of what you're actually delivering it's how you're delivering it and how you and the client are interacting together and not only what's going on for them, but what's going on for you in the room and how your own perception of your own gender and how you perceive someone of the male gender, that is going to impact your efficacy as a therapist and then whether they even really want to be there. I saw a just a, a final anecdote. I saw a huge Maori dude who was one of my first clients. He had the biggest biceps you've ever seen. He was tatted up uh, all over. He came in and I decided that this was going to be the time where I was going to experiment and just relax into this and not have any assumptions about what was about to happen. The first session, he sat down and uh, I decided that I was going to talk in a, in a you know, certain way where I was not going to try and be bro-y, for instance, and, and try to relate to him on that level. And what happened is that he bawled the whole session. Mm. And it was 
I allowed that space that I probably would have just added banter to because I was uncomfortable. And so it required that self-reflection when he, I saw him in the waiting room and I was like, I need to do something differently here because he's here, he's made it in. And if I just do that, I'm just going to continue that whole dialogue that he's already had with so many people where he doesn't feel the space to actually open up. And whether or not I'm a man or a woman in that instance, I think it's important to just go, how am I going to interact with this guy? And also, when am I going to pivot? When am I going to shift based on what's going on here? Because for instance, if I did that and I was really empathetic and nothing is, is moving there, I'll move into the banter space and I'll start to see buy-in and then I'll come back. And just being able to pivot accordingly is pretty useful. Yeah. A key message is not buying into the stereotype. And experimenting. Yeah. Changing tack. Speaking of experiments, our last question is, what is a research question that you would like to see answered or to answer yourself? Will you? When the APS asks me how long I intend to work in this field, yeah. I always just answer <laughs> 70 years. Mm-hmm. Like, forever. So hopefully I can answer lots of questions. But um, now being in the suicide prevention space and, and being pretty blessed and very grateful with the stories that I am, you know, that are shared with me every day, I want to know um, what's going on in the in the period leading up to it. Um, I have a, a serious uh, problem with this idea that there is some kind of, uh, you know, that there's such misunderstanding around the triggers, around the risk factors. And I'd love to, and I'm hoping that uh, we'll get ethical clearance for this, to look into coronial data and then go and talk to the GPs of the men who have suicided to be like, because they're, they're the people that are seeing these guys, even if it's just for a flu. There's something, there's some interaction happening. And if that is the only instance where there's an interaction with the healthcare system, we need to find a way to to pick up on certain little things. And I want to know from the GPs if there is anything that could have been done differently. There's no guilt in this, obviously, um, because it's a very complex process. But we do not understand mm. the pathways of distress and then the pathways from distress to suicidality. There's a lot of impulsivity that comes in. There's a lot of, as I said, situational stresses that don't actually happen as often in women. So the idea that uh, distress is actually the greatest risk factor for suicide in women, but unemployment and financial distress are the greatest risk factors in men. My understanding, which you have reinforced, is that the the moments and the states leading up to uh, a man's decision to suicide is extremely difficult for us to predict and understand it's a black box the to unknowing. our knowledge yeah. and our efforts to try and assess and prevent it are ineffective i don't like that when people ask questions in this realm i have very poor answers and so that's why i'm in this this field and i think that qualitative research has a huge ability Sorry. to shine a light into the darkness but that aside we just need to have a, a better understanding. And I think this new funding from the government looking at aftercare specifically is going to be really useful to talk to guys who have attempted and, and to try to understand what they need and what they would have needed just before as well. A black box that we sincerely hope you are able to open and shed light on, Zach. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Anytime. <laughs> 
Thank you for listening to another episode of The Science of Therapy. We hope you enjoyed it and felt that you were walking away or driving away from that episode with lots of interesting things to think about and reflect on. And if you would like to put those reflections down on paper, please feel free to fill out our CPD form, Continuing Professional Development, very important for psychologists out there. It's available on our website, scienceoftherapy.com. When you visit the website, you can also find out more about Zach and his projects and his research. Any of our other speakers, you can access past episodes. You can find out more information about us. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please give us a good rating wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and we look forward to catching you next time. Bye.